In this episode, we're looking ahead to 2024. There will be no predictions from us, of course, but we will be discussing the big things that could have an impact on the property market. From interest rates to rising stock levels to immigration and everything in between, we'll give you our list of the things you should be thinking about if you're about to buy or sell property in 2024. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Well, I guess no discussion about what we might expect in 2024 is really complete if we don't start by what a surprising year 2023 was. (laughs) Chris, cast our minds back to the very beginning of 2023 and all the doom and gloom that was out there. And, you know, what did actually happen? And there was a lot of doom and gloom. Um, You know, people were still expecting prices to continue to fall. They hadn't, the numbers hadn't caught up yet. Like they you know, we were absolutely seeing a shift in buyers, even in late 2022. I did a few posts on LinkedIn saying, I think the peak has passed. I think we're, you know, the best buying has passed, um, you know, the the bottom of the market, I guess. Um, but, you know, the general media story was, you know, it's going to be a catastrophic year, right? The fixed rate cliff was all over the news. Uh, big name commentators were predicting, you know, 15, 25% falls in prices, Um but it just didn't add up to us, um, you know, and there's been lots of things that have sort of supported prices. And I mean, it even surprised myself how much it has gone back up over over 2023. I mean, it's been a good year for price growth, really, if you just base it on that year alone. Um, and, you know, we're, it's crazy to think that we're already maybe breaking 2021 highs, really. I mean, I think you, uh, Sydney and Melbourne are, you know, maybe a percent or two below what they were at the peak. Um, I wouldn't have expected that at the start of 2023. I mean, What's been your overall take on the year, Veronica? Yeah, well, certainly if I look at Sydney prices, of course, yes. um, the tide turned in terms of data, in terms of officially when we could look back and we could see very clearly that the bottom was January, or really, really December 2022. But so prices started rising again from January. And so that was Sydney. And of course, Sydney led the rest of the country. And in fact, the top end of Sydney, so the, the top 25th percentile, that actually led the country for a period of time. And towards the end of the year, of course, Sydney started petering out. But still, we were seeing month-on-month growth, just at a slower rate. And we started to see other cities such as Perth um, take over. But also, you've seen, um, you know, Adelaide took a long time to, to fall in prices. You know, so Adelaide was very, very strong. Hobart has been you know, probably one of the worst performers, but that's been the sort of the darling of the investor set for some time. Um, so across the board and also towards the end of 2023, we also started seeing a, a difference in capital cities and regional areas as well. So if we sort of just look at this sort of snapshot of the year, I think I think the biggest surprise is that uh, prices continue to rise, even though we had the beginning of the year, we had rising interest rates, we had a bit of a hiatus for a little bit. And now we've, we've had one extra rise uh, in the last quarter. And and yet in the face of all that, and of course, we're going to talk about some of the 
contributing uh, factors to this performance in property and how that may well continue or otherwise into 2024. But I guess what I think if anyone is still holding on to the belief that interest rates and price movement are correlated, then they've really got to let go of that belief now. There's no actual data to support it. There wasn't any at the beginning of the rate hike cycle, and there clearly is no data to support it now that we've had well, a good 18 months of uh, you know rate rises or, or holds. Yeah, I mean, at the start of the year, the rate, RBA rate was 3.1, So, uh, but the expectations that were going to keep going up, and they did go up, right? So they're at 4.35, so they've gone up. Uh, and I think a lot of people were saying, like, I mean, not to uh, pick on Chris Joy, but Chris Joy back was saying, you know, if rates got 1%, prices are going to fall 15 to 25%. Rates have gone up 4.2%, but they're still at the same peak. Um, borrowing capacity has fallen a good 30%, if not more, depending on um, your personal situations with work, whether you've had salary increases or not. If you haven't, um, it's gone down a lot more than that, probably close to 40%. So, you know, in the space of huge reductions in borrowing capacity, huge increases into mortgage repayments, um, you know, there's reasons why I guess it's it's stayed as strong as it has. Why? And then when resilience has been what has commonly been banded about in terms of the property market and surprising resilience is probably the truth behind it. Um, I mean, the, the, I mean, the first thing though, we're going to 2023 though, like, um, you know, I think CoreLogic do an amazing monthly ha- housing chart pack that, you know, Oh, yeah, everyone should, if you're listening to this, you probably should read that every month. It's it's free. It's, yeah, it's free. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it, you know, I love to go a bit more granular than a lot of the stuff it goes through, but, um, you know, you look at sort of new listings in autumn last year, it was just nothing came on the market in that sort of, oh no, no, sorry. In spring, I mean, late last year, um, nothing really came on the market and at the start of 2023, very little properties came on the market. And so. You know, property's priced on demand and supply. So if you absolutely constrain supply because everyone just sat on their hands, it's not a good time to sell. Um, if demand falls and supply falls and they kind of offset each other. So that was just something that happened in downturns. You know, the 2018, 2019 downturn, you saw absolutely exactly the same thing happen. You know, listings really dried up, particularly of good properties because people yep. in good properties said, why would I want to upgrade in this market? I've already got a good asset. It's not worth the risk. I don't want to pay a higher mortgage. Um, I can't find anything I like anyway. Um, I don't want to take on, I haven't got the borrowing capacity. I'm just going to sit on my hand. That would be one of the the biggest things that surprised a lot of people, even though it doesn't surprise people who track the market. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? it sometimes it can even surprise us, even though we do track the market. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> because because you can be, we can be taken by surprise by the the strength. We We know that these things are true. We know that in areas where there's not high amount of debt, then the pressure on people to sell is just not there in the same way it is in areas with high amount of debt, right? And and so that goes to reason that in the newer areas where the properties are all newer, the buyers typically are first home buyers, therefore buying with a huge amount of debt. They haven't accru- accrued the equity um, and also everyone's been in the property roughly the same amount of time. You know, you've got every everyone in similar situations and they're all going to be a lot more impacted by uh, interest rate rises and and adverse conditions in on on mass in a place like that, and you're you're going to get more listings in places like that. Whereas if you were in areas where you got people living there that've been there thirty years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, 
and then maybe someone who's been there only one year and they're actually under mortgage stress, then you've only got one house in a street that's suffering mortgage stress. You don't have the entire street. So it stands to reason that there are going to be certain areas that are much more uh, resilient than other areas. So, you know, when we watch the market, we're aware of all this sort of stuff and these dynamics that underplay and underpin areas. Um, But even so, even so, because it's hard not to get impacted to some degree by all the negativity that's out there in the media. Um, And, you know, and I can feel it even though I know better. So our human behavior, our human biases kick in and our fears kick in. So despite all that, you know, people have not you know they've they've not bailed on mass, and so therefore we have it's still in a situation where listings have risen a little bit, and they've finally CoreLogic and uh, showed that in a uh, national sense they finally pipped the five year average uh, in the final quarter of 2023, but that's been sitting well below the five year average for quite some time. Yeah, and I think there was this belief that the fixed rate cliff, that everyone was going to come off their fixed rates and they'd be forced to sell straight away. And I think people um, weren't that silly, you know, that people thought that people had no money, they're just going to have to rush to sell. Like they had buffers, they had money in redraws and offsets and they could lean on family and they increased their incomes and they got second jobs and um, and so they, uh, and they prepared for it, you know, and so distressed listings are, are pretty low, you know, and particularly... Uh, Across the banks, there's been no major, major uplift. You know, non-bank lenders are having a bit more of a tougher time because they usually lent to people who were stretching their borrowing capacities. But when you break up the listings, Jardin did some really interesting research on this that says it's really the investors that have been selling and we've seen Mm -hmm. that, you know. So what people would make a decision in this moment is, do I really need that investment property that if I sell it, I don't have the cash flow burden, I have the stress of maintenance and fixing it. Um, and I potentially could free up a little bit of equity, which is enough to get me through this danger zone rather than selling my home. And that's, that's led to, you know, the rental crisis, you know, really it's, it's a, we've got a massive increase in migration. Um, yeah, when you haven't had international students arrive in the, uh, for a few years, the universities are going to do catch up. Um, and absolutely that's what's happened, right? I think it's over 500,000, um, you know, new increase to our population and migration. And so. That um, on top of people moving back and wanting rental accommodations after COVID, uh, you know, and investors selling. So the number of rental properties out there were diminishing because most of the time when investors sold, they were selling to first-time buyers. Um, And so I think this real rental crisis has been something that I think supported prices because people are going, well, it's not an option to rent. My rent's got up 20, 30, 50%. and I do need to buy at some point and renting is not a good option long-term because I've just experienced that. I got kicked out of my home for the third time. I need to buy. So I think that's been a, a real surprise to me is, you know, um, and it's not a good, it's a, not a good thing. The rental crisis is no easy solutions. You can't get investors back as quickly as people have been leaving. Yeah. Look, and also, I mean, you've got to build, you know, so it's, it's not just uh, investors leaving the market, but it does take a long time to actually create the stock. So, so I think all of these, the sort of the setup, if you like, of 2023 heading into 2024 does lead us to think that listing situation isn't necessarily going to ease in a meaningful way, that even when there is more listings on the market, we always struggle to find quality property anyway. So that's just, that's just across the board. That's just the, the, the fact of the matter. And, um, 
anywhere where you might see a rush of listings might not be the sort of property you really want to buy anyway. And in terms of confidence, though, around vendors who have been sitting on their hands, where who want to upgrade or downsize, you know, so people actually trading their homes, one of the sticking points for them is the availability of something to buy to move into. And you certainly don't want to be out of the market. You don't want to sell um, to then then buy if you can't rent something. So you can see why there's lots and lots of reasons why people would sit on their hands and not list their properties. And so I, I really can't see a lot that's going to change that. And and I guess that's the behavior. It's the behavioral part of this, you know, it's how human beings respond and react to what's going on. So, so the listing side of things, we don't see easing. In terms of, um, you know, we've also had a problem with uh, uh, building approvals been declining for some time. You've got builders collapsing. So you've got this sort of whole build to rent segment saying that they're going to, that they want to ramp up. But I think some, it's a drop in the bucket in terms of the total amount of properties that is required. So I think any government policy that's trying to drive, and obviously the rezoning, particularly in New South Wales, is, is, is being very, very uh, topical. But any drive to rezone areas or make it easier or more profitable for builders is still hamstrung by a lack of building companies, uh, a lack of trades, a lack of, uh, you know, rising uh, materials costs, which have been easing, but still are high. Um, so you've got lots and lots of reasons where the the supply of new stock is going to be continue to be constrained. And, you know, I've heard a number of economists saying that really the the shortage of housing that we have in this country is going to take a decade to get to the bottom of. So that's another thing that's really going to constrain supply. Yeah, absolutely. I think you made the, you know, the people sitting on their hands is absolutely what we've seen, right? So people, uh, and they, I don't think they, they would love a bigger house. They'd love to live in a, um, you know, have four bedrooms instead of three bedrooms, but to make that jump from a three to a four is an extra million dollars or $500,000. And they, A, don't really want to pay standard in selling costs if they absolutely have to. Um, and two, they may not be able to borrow the money. Their borrowing capacity might not be. And C, do they really want to under higher interest rates? Um, and then you, like you said, the rental crisis there as well. Um, so I think the turnover rate on properties has been reducing for a long time um, in terms of how many people are actually, you know, you're not just buying and selling every few years and upgrading and upgrading. It's just really hard to do that. And so I can see that happening all the way through 2024 if rates stay high is that listings of houses in particular will likely stay really low. It doesn't mean that people, investors won't sell their apartments or sell their regional properties. Um and I mean, uh, that, that sort of leads into another point that we've seen, um, you know, the, the return to work, the work from home phenomenon, um, I think that's really shifted in 2023 back to the, the empower to the employer. I would say that Ooh. more and more firms are mandating multiple days back in the office. You know, some firms are trying to do the full five days in the office and, um, you know, from our clients and what talking to, to people is that not many people want to make those big lifestyle moves like they did in 2023, uh, 2, 1, 2020, um, because they're worried that if they, they want to swap jobs and even job confidence isn't like it was probably at the start of this year, we had ridiculously low unemployment rate. So I think you're going into 2023, if our unemployment rate was much higher or was increasing and we had this really, um, not as strong labor market then we probably would have had a lot more issues this year because people wouldn't have been able to pay their mortgages. They wouldn't have been getting bonuses. And I think that's that to me is a bit of a, a concern going into 2024 is 
Um, you know, because I think our borrowers are not as confident around their future income as they were just 12 months ago. Um, so I would say that's a, it's a bit of a warning sign coming into next year. Don't say that's going to lead to price falls, but that to me, um, I think the, and the retreat from the regions, I do think there's a two stories here. There's a city story, properties that suit families close to the city versus things that are, you know, non-commutable to the city. I think they're going to be running on different timelines. Yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of interesting too, because of course, this pressure for people to spend more time in the office versus, you know, the complete work from home or even the hybrid where a couple of days commute or maybe one day a commute a, a week would be tolerable. It's it's creeping up. But also I think the love affair with the idea of a, t- a tree or sea change, I mean, there's a reality to that, you know, and, and some people, yes, it's perfectly suited to, but I think other people uh, potentially not perfectly suited to. And of course, that results in a U-turn. And, and the thing around that too is that best practice before COVID would have been you go and test an area out, you rent there for a bit, you know, but that that opportunity is uh, had evaporated. And so therefore people were competing to buy properties. And that's one of the things that really pushed prices up in the regions. And so the regions, the story there has been showing some some price falls and obviously we're talking the regions you know we're going to be careful about talking trying yep. to aggregate data the entire regional outside capital cities of the country doesn't really work that way but some regions have been hit particularly hard uh and you know we, we're taught to byron bay byron bay the richmond richmond uh valley area you know that's a classic that that goes off because it's very aspirational people have this idealized idea of what their life would be like if they were able to live there all the time but the reality isn't quite the same. And so that peaks and troughs quite significantly and has done and you know, over decades. It's this is not a recent phenomenon. So that's the sort of thing that's playing out. So and I, and I would imagine that twenty twenty four, there's no reason to expect that that could change. But of course we had COVID in twenty twenty. No one thought that was gonna happen. So anything could happen. But based on what's happening currently and assuming no major changes, you know, that that's probably a trend that will continue. Yeah, I mean, I think COVID was like having a bit of a tree change, sea change experience, right? You went away and you couldn't see anyone. And that's kind of sometimes like moving to, you know, an area that you don't know anyone and that you can't go to the city. But I think there's, um, you know, I do think that there's a desire, not just from employer, but employee to get back into the city. The cities are getting their mojo back. You know, people are, are quite enjoying that hybrid model um, and there's more people going to the office. So then more people want to be in the office and I know I think people are asking for face-to-face meetings and wanting to do those things uh, more and more. And so, um, yeah, I, I, it's going to be interesting. So once people, and you've seen these prices around the capital cities, the things that are commutable are the things that have gone up. But once they have gone up, people have to make those choices again. So it's not to say it's the death of the regions and no one's ever going back there, but there will be once they people can't afford, um, you know, the locations that are commutable then they will have to make compromises, assuming they can get work that is, you know, some type of hybrid model. Because I do think hybrid's going to stick around. I don't think we're going five days back to the city personally. Um, and it's just people's negotiation skills with employers. And I don't know, maybe their employers don't have to offer amazing flexibility right now because they can play on the apathy of their employees. But, you know, maybe if we get to a strong labor market again in a few years time, does that then... The, the ticket to get someone to work for you, is it offering great flexibility again? Is is that because the cat's out of the bag now? So I think what, one thing that I, just in preparation for today, I see here, what was the thing that, you know, really supported the market that's sometimes forgotten about is in New South Wales and Sydney, it was no stamp duty up to 1.5 million um, up till July this year. And 
we had a lot of people entering the market who, you know, really didn't have enough deposit to enter the market in the old world, but then did have enough deposit because the, the government basically said you didn't have to pay stamp duty up to 1.5. And that created almost like a mini boom in good assets under 1.5 million that probably should have been selling at 1.3, 1.4, but was selling at 1.5 on the nose. And I do think that that supported prices and medians and, and supported the story around the market recovering when really it was bringing forward buyers that probably should be entering the market over the next few years, like a credit card, it was bringing them into the market today. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And and made even the more effective, I guess, um, because you know the Labor government, the state Labor government, or yet-to-be Labor government in opposition came out saying that basically if they got into government, they would repeal that. So therefore, everybody knew there was a ticking time bomb on that one. Um, and as it turned out, they did win the election, and they did they did remove it. So there was that uh, urgency, and certainly a lot of a lot of people took advantage of that. Um, I have no doubt that that's actually one of the things that underpinned the you know basically it was a bit of an impetus at the beginning of the year. And I think too, um, you know, if we look at the <laughs> one one of the the groups of of buyers that you're always talking about, and mainly because of your demographic in terms of your life stage, is the family buyer, right? So. Um, Families, you know, <laughs> they, it's amazing when you think about it. Families are going through a period of time where they have a huge amount of costs. You know, they've got children are expensive little buggers, right? And education and all the rest of it. And particularly if one of the partnership are not working yeah. uh, full time. And so there's lots of reasons why you would imagine that families are, are really struggling. And I know a lot of families are really struggling, but at the same time, you've got families some families seem to have an enormous amount of money and the ability to play the game and get into the market and 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 push up prices effectively. If you think about really what drove the boom coming out of COVID, it was families. Yep. Owner occupiers, families needing more space. Now, of course, interest rates were low back then. But the reality is that anybody who has had children since then or their kids have got into high school since then or they haven't they were didn't manage to upgrade in that period, there's a there's a constant pressure on families for more space, and it's sort of unavoidable. There's not many people with three kids sharing one bedroom, even two. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions, and you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au, and there you'll find resources for first-home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Is that the the end of the statement now? I wasn't sure if you'd finished. No, I'm waiting for you to kick in because I know this is a big bug there for you. (laughs) I think, uh, sorry to our listeners there, uh, I wasn't sure if Veronica had finished uh, 300 episodes and I wasn't sure. No, I do absolutely uh, think that, you know, that's that's so true, right? I mean, they've got the biggest emotional pull. They've got a, a, you know, renting is not an option. There's pent up demand in the market always for people who have got kids who are in space that isn't big enough and they'd love to upgrade. You know, they're in an apartment mm. now. 
they want a house or they're renting um, and well, they've they got go an investment property. Or three-bedroom apartment even. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that the minute prices fall, that market will spring into action. <laughs> Absolutely. And if I'm honest, one of the things that surprised me the most this year isn't a good thing, um, if I'm honest, for the market in longer term, is the sheer volume of intergenerational wealth coming down um, over the last 12 months. And, mm. you know, when we look at how much the Australian property market is worth, what is it, $10 trillion, $10 trillion. right? The amount of debt in the outstanding mortgage, this is not 2.2. Two. Two then you've got money in offsets and things like that. It's probably even a lot less than that. Um, so, you know, what is it, $8 trillion of equity in the Australian property market? And what we've seen, um, and this is a, a story of haves and have-nots, and I think that's just going to get worse yeah. and worse. So firstly, you know, Jarden again did some really good research. CBA also did some research on this that basically showed that the people in the market right now is heavily skewed towards people on the middle to high income. For lower income people just haven't got the savings, the capacity to, to enter the market. That's been one of the reasons why the market stayed strong because the person who had a $1.5 million borrowing capacity, yes, it dropped 30%. So it's dropped to a million. Um, and, uh, but so they still were able to buy and they absolutely have bought at a lower price than they would have two years ago. But also what we've seen is they've gone and tapped mum and dad um, and grandma and granddad, um, can you give me some early inheritance? And, you know, their supers are doing pretty well. Um, their property prices haven't fallen off a cliff. Um, they're happy to get rid of an investment property. You know, people are obviously passing away and they, they see their issues with their kids because um, what they're seeing is their kids are having a rental crisis, particularly when kids are around. Um, uh, so their grandkids, they don't want their kids to leave because they still want to see them. Um, and they know they're stretching their borrowing capacity because they can say, I can only borrow a million dollars from the bank. Um, and so the only way to keep them is to, to, to give them early inheritance. And, you know, we've seen lots of clients over the last, um, you know, 12 months that, you know, have had huge deposits coming down. And uh, obviously not everyone has got this, but I would, there's just so much wealth in the system. And they've always, you know, there's, if you type in intergenerational wealth into Google, from the baby boomers, um, there's, you know, it's always been that the 2030s was going to be when all this money, they die. Um but they're actually seen to be passing the money down earlier, not on debt. Um, and, you know, and I think that's a big story that I think has got a lot of legs going into the years to come. So even though borrowing capacities are really tight, that doesn't mean that they're not getting money from the bank of mum and dad and grandma and granddad. Yeah. And look, I agree with you that it's, it's, it's like the next wave of basically how, how can new buyers be enabled to get into the marketplace? And it isn't necessarily good for us as a society because it does increase that that divide between those who have and those who never will have. Yeah. And it is definitely privilege. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, obviously the government, federal government's uh, coming out in 2024 with a, um, a shared equity scheme and there are various other initiatives out there to help those buyers that do not have access to inter intergenerational wealth. Um, but- you know, at the end of the day, they don't, they've got to share their equity. You know, if you, if you're getting an early inheritance, you don't have to share that. So even then there's still a, there's still a gap there, but at least to a degree, there are some options there for people to be considering, but absolutely it's, it's a problem. And it's, it 
that's going to prop the system up. You know, like we, we often talk about the, the property market in this country is too big to fail. And now you've actually got the participants. So the governments don't want it to fail for lots of reasons, you know, and um, our whole economy is really, really hanging on the on the back of a, our residential property market. But now you've got the individual participants. They don't want it to fail. So they're all going to continue to recycle the money back into into the assets. So anyway, so that's that's something that we're seeing. Investors, um, well, it's interesting that investors, are they coming back into the market? Is investor borrowing on the rise, Chris? Yeah. So like, um, and I, it's, it's, you know, when you look at the actual aggregate data, I should bring it up on the ABS stats, but from our last check a month or two ago, um, it was actually like on a dollar value, very similar to what 2015, 2016 was. And so surprisingly, I oh know in the last 12 months, we've actually seen quite a bit of investors enter back into the market but nowhere near the amount of investors leaving. Um, and, uh, you know, when you think about it, it does make sense. You know, there was a little bit of a FOMO building in the market. Like, it's not what you would expect when interest rates are going up over 4%, but there was this uh, expectation, if I don't buy an investment property now, I'm going to miss it again. You know, like there's people who have been burnt, same as home buyers. They say, well, I don't want to miss the bottom, so I better get in early, you know, and that's been meant that the, the market, rebounded earlier, right? And then people say, oh, I've missed it. I better get in now. And that pushes prices up. So there has been uh, an influx of investors back into, you know, reasonable levels. So investors just haven't completely fallen off the cliff. Um, so it's people who said, oh, maybe I can't do an upgrade, but I've still got capacity left over. My house value is there. I'm still on top of my debt. Um, and I can afford an investment property because of things like negative gearing, like the, the cash flow, even though interest rates have gone up, it's tax deductible. And so I can still, and rents have gone up as well. And so maybe they they can afford that cash flow and they want to do something for their retirement. So we would say that investors have been surprisingly coming back into the market. Now, I don't think they're all buying, buying great properties. Um, yeah. And genuinely speaking, they do go down more of a quantity strategy, I would say, under higher interest rates environment. So I don't think they've been doing the best things. Um, but I do think that's also been supporting prices. Well, there's always going to be a new wave of the next generation of investors. You know, and so, you know, often you'll get um, first home buyers who really can't afford to buy the home to live in, they'll, they'll rent fest instead. So, and I don't think we've got any hard data on proportions here, but we do know this is this is a fact that there are people out there that fall into this category. And there's also the great Australian dream of, of building wealth through property. So there's, there's, there's always an appetite. I mean, just get onto YouTube and see who the popular YouTubers are in, in this space. And you can see that the the type of demographic, I guess, or the, the the lack of sophistication around a lot of investors entering the market. So that would be why, you, you know, the comments around, we can't really necessarily talk to the quality of what they're buying and certainly buying at a lower price point too, points to that sort of idea of the affordability buyer, you know. Um, but it's interesting that you say it's not replenishing or not replacing the investors that are vacating. I mean, we we did speak to Nicola um, McDougall yeah. from Pippa a a couple of weeks back, and and of course the data was there. I've got to top of my head. I think it was something like twenty four percent of investors are selling to other investors. So of course that that is a is a quite a dramatic reduction of the uh, of the um the pool, the rental pool. So heading into twenty twenty four, obviously that's we've got no real sign of that changing either necessarily. So investor participation and and nor the rental situation. Of course, rents are. They are capped by incomes in a way that property yep. gr- price growth isn't. Um, and so, the, you know, there's always a hard, a bit of a hard ceiling, I guess, on how far rents can go and the elasticity of rents. 
Um, but, you know, as increasing amount of people are displaced through high rents, um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty dire situation anyway. Yeah, I do think that the investors are going to continue to keep selling into 2024. It's what they'll have to do to stay in their homes, um, particularly because if rates do stay high all the way through 2024, which is what the expectation is, maybe there's a rate cut or two, but we're not expecting, you know, one or 2% cut to the RBA rate next year. Um, you know, one thing going into 2023 is uh, people probably didn't understand um the impact of the amount of refinancing that happened in 2020 and 2021 that basically increased the buffers of the whole housing market, you know, because when people refinance, they don't, you know, uh, you know, say you had a 30 year load and then, you know, five years later you go to refinance. Most of the time that loan will get re-extended to 30 years okay, and that'll lower your repayment. Um, and potentially they get some cash out, they get a hundred thousand dollars out or, and so what that meant is that when rates did go back up, they were on a really long loan terms. And I think that's something that because refinance numbers went through the roof in 2020, 2021, um, under low interest rates, way more than ever had ever been refinanced before. And so, um, yeah, and I think our investors selling into 2024, I do see that happening. We can already see um, that happening with some of our clients. It's just a way to stay in the market and keep their homes Um this building collapse thing that we touched on, um, I do think that's going to be a real issue going into the market in the next few years because developers just can't make the numbers work. You know, when you look at the cost they're paid for the land and all the taxes and getting labor that they're competing with the government, they're competing with the commercial sector, they're competing with the foreign market uh, and lower tax juris uh, jurisdictions, like going working in Saudi and um, etc. So talent and labor is really expensive, plus materials. And also a lot of developers haven't got the, the big buffers like they did going into COVID, you know, years building up their liquidity fund if things didn't go very well. But a lot of developers have lost money and um, have used their buffers to stay uh, liquid. Um, and so I just don't think they can make the numbers stack up. There is, they can make the numbers stack up if they're building for the downsizer market in the more affluent areas. But then they're limited because in those areas, there's strict planning controls and they can only build in block of six. They can't build a block of 60 in Double Bay, for example. And so um, I think that's where developers will continue to build because there's no money to be made in you know, high density high rise. Even though the government's trying to do all this rezoning, that doesn't mean that they can make money. Um, and uh, new house and land packages, uh, a lot of first home buyers just can't borrow the money to you know, buy the land and to do the build. They're just, the numbers aren't there. They're earning 150000 They can borrow 600000 or 700000 but to buy a house and land package, it's 900000 It just doesn't add up. Um, no, but even and, if they can, the, the level of confidence in that seg sector is is really low. Absolutely. So, yeah, a yeah. lot of builders, and that then puts more pressure on builders. Of course, if they can't sign contracts, then, then they're under more financial pressure. So that's that's just that, you know, the lovely legacy of the Home Builder Program. <laughs> it's like, who would have foreseen this stuff? God. Yeah. Um, and I do feel for that whole market because I do think they've, they've, they've had a lot, not just COVID, the weather, um, you know, the fixed price contracts. And they, they a lot of them did get burnt really hard over the last couple of years. And... Um, yeah, that's that hasn't been good for them. I think though, what you're talking about rezoning. I mean, that the the it does seem that our governments are all very aware of 
at least they need to be seen to be doing something very tangible around our housing shortage. Uh, in New South Wales, recently we had some leaked do- documents around rezoning around train, you know, train stations and metro stops. Um, rather, sh- rather shocking and drastic. Um, that'll get the NIMBYs out as well as the YIMBYs, no doubt. Um, so, it, look, you know, if you suddenly can actually get a hell of a lot more dwellings on the site that you already own, then that is going to change things for some developers. So, you know, I think that we could potentially see some some activity in some of those areas. Um, what do you think about a recession, though, Chris? You, you know, <laughs> are we heading for one? I mean, that's the big question. And we're not predicting anything here. We're just having conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the whole rezoning thing's interesting. And, um, you know, the eight locations, I think, they're written, and there's another, like, 31 locations that are going to get rezoned around the trade stations within 400 metres, et cetera. Um, well. One of them had a 1,200 metre radius. It's like, yeah. you know. <laughs> That's a long there's way. A, there's a map that, you know, in Balmain, for instance, you know, obviously anyone listens to this knows that's where my office is. And Balmain is an area that is a suburb where most of it is heritage conservation for starters. And also the value of land's very expensive. So try, try knocking over a row of terraces to, to build a high rise, even if it's zoned, you know, just the the – uh, access to the land is going to make that prohib- prohibitive. So it's a bit of a slightly naive um, in some regards. But, um, yeah, it's just like pins on a map, you know, right, there's a st- stop there, right, 600 metres each, each, you know, radius on that one. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of that is on that Metro West. And, you know, best case, they think that's going to finish in 2032. If that's anything to do like the North Sydney pool, um, <laughs> which I think is uh, more expensive than the Eiffel Tower now or something like that. Um, it might not be 2032. And, you know, a lot of that's on that train line. And so a lot of people won't want to move there until that train line's up and running, right? That's one of the drivers. Why are you moving there is the accessibility. And so if that train line's delayed, you know, there's a lot of pre- reasons why it could be. Um, it's a, such a long time away. We're talking at least a decade, et cetera. And so this was rezoning. I think it's an eye what would you call it? Like a little bit of a uh, secret hole in the future or something like uh, this is, there is going to be rezoning. It's not going to be across the whole city, but there's going to be around key transport links. I think it's just um, a good uh, warning sign that if you are buying a property right now, you want to be very careful that if these things continue to happen over the next couple of decades, if you hold it for a few decades, that they're not going to impact your prices. If not, they're going to benefit your prices um, because you're still going to have scarcity. I mean, I didn't See, try the, to. The, yeah, the, I was talking to somebody yesterday who was talking about Green Square. Now, look, I know this is a little bit of a Sydney, a Sydney uh, centric part of this conversation, so don't tune out if you're not from Sydney. Yeah. Uh, but Green Square is is an area that's had enormous unit development. It's only it's oh god, it's I think six k's from the city or six or eight k's from the city. It's not far. It's got a tra- It's got a new train or newish um, train station. And so it supposedly it's well serviced by public transport. You put a heavy rail in there and you think that's great, right? But I was talking to somebody only yesterday who was saying that every morning there's a queue out right out from the station out into the street every morning and people, computers waiting to get on those trains. I've seen in the city even, you know, some of those bus stops for stops for going to Northern Beaches for argument's sake, places like that where they're not serviced by more than one type of transport and i've seen the queues for the buses i think my god how many buses that have, would have to come along before the people at the end of the queue actually get on one you know 
And so I think that, yes, around this idea of, you know, it's all well and good to say there's all these areas where there's going to be lots of new development and you may or may not like that. You may or may not, that may or may not attract you. You may or may not decide to invest in those areas for, for whatever reasons. But the infrastructure really needs to be part of the whole planning. And, you know, that green square has been there for a good decade or so now and it's still got queues outside. You know, that's pretty poor planning in my view if that's the situation. <laughs> Um, you know, so I, I don't know what the answer is there. I mean, we've got more people coming than we've we've got the capacity to to absorb them, I think. Yeah, and I think that this is going to be the ongoing conversation around, um, but I think it's, you know, heading in the right direction for, you know, the NIMBYs just holding on and saying we're full. You can't build in my suburb. You're just going to do those uh, greenfield estates and build high density and high density pockets. I think there's going to be a bit more of a, a missing middle and, um, more zones where developers can build and um yeah and so I, th- I do think this is just part of the evolution of a city trying to to grow its population i did do a pr- proper politician swerve before when you asked me if there's going to be a recession i think um <laughs> you know i do think there's a lot the consumer confidence if we talk about things that are tailwinds or headwinds for the property market like a consumer confidence is a ridiculously like lows right everyone is very concerned around interest rates and the economy and um and so, you know, that we, we haven't been going out and buying property or pushing price, property prices up when consumers have been really confident around the future. Um, so if that happened, right, um, you know, that could be a real tailwind for the property market. But expectations are great around the world. You know, their expectations are that, that maybe or may not, we may not get it like a soft landing or maybe, you know, there's an energy crisis around the world and inflation comes back and or it's much more stubborn and wages, price inflation sticks in and rates stay high for longer and people default on their mortgages. So I don't say, I don't think we're out of the woods yet, but I do think that, you know, if they do navigate that, you know, small path and inflation keeps falling like it is um, around the world and, and to a lesser extent here, you know, it seems like we're a bit on a, a lag to the rest of the world. Um, the conversation will move to rate cuts and uh, you've already seen that in the papers a little bit. And Rate cuts don't need to happen for the benefit of the rate cuts to affect the prices. And I think this is what people just need to be a bit careful on. If people generally, if the market believe rate cuts are near and they're going to be quite significantly, then buyers who can will act based on that now. And so some people have to wait for the rate cuts to get their higher borrowing capacities um, uh, to them to buy. But I think that a lot of people will try to preempt that. And we'll try to get in before the rate cuts happen because they'll believe that rate cuts will lead to price growth. And so as soon as that confidence around rate cuts really starts to build, and that might happen when inflation numbers start to get, you know, in the threes and um, we're not too far off that now, right? Um, That's something to, and I do think when rate cuts happen, there's going to be a pressure for APRA to step in and reduce the assessment rate. Because why would you want a 3% assessment rate when rates are falling? Um, and, you know, 56% of household wealth's in property. And I do think that's why the market's stalling, right? Because people people can't just keep pushing prices up because there's a capacity restraint. And so if you do see this flatlining in prices, or maybe there's a little bit of a fallback in prices, um, that would just give the government and, and APRA reason for lowering the assessment rate. Because prices aren't running away, so they don't need to slow down price growth. So can they stimulate by cutting the assessment rate together with rate cuts, together with tax cuts, together with, you know, wage increases that people get, and then borrowing capacities jump up a fair whack. And my gut would be that people will spend all that borrowing capacity 
because they'll be more confident because rates are falling. Interesting enough, if the if the stage is the stage four tax cuts or stage yeah, three, stage whatever, three anyway, or September, four, yeah. the, the, the tax cuts <laughs> that are that are at this stage legislated and and still going to go through in September, you know, that's going to put more money in the economy, right? Which could lead to interest rate rises. Of course, it could be, uh, result in inflation, but I think I think. You know, I, when I'm looking at sort of what has happened in 23, what could happen in 2024, I look back at the last, say, COVID years, 20, 21, 22, 23, uh, 23, four years there, of all the predictions and all the ideas around consumer sentiment, what people think is going to happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, only one of those years was sort of predictable. And that was 2022 when prices fell. All the other years, you know, Nobody, pre- there was the response to COVID was unprecedented. 2021, that boom was just crazy, right? The recovery this year has been surprising, you know, but it, it does amaze me at all the media reports, all the reports that have been put out by the data houses saying surprising, 2023 is surprising. I'm like, yeah, well, so was 2021 and so was 2020. We should be getting used to it. So I guess what I would say is that really we have to, Head down, bum up. Stop trying to. I mean, we're talking about what what could happen, and so you you're you're informed and aware. But at the end of the day, you've got to make decisions based on your own requirements, your own circumstances, and forge a path. Because if you're trying to ride this wave and try to actually gain it, gain the system in some way, then you're probably going to get it wrong. Because every year we get surprised by something. Well, a three out of four years, anyway, we got surprised by something. Oh, it's every year. I, I, I think if you go back in time, um, every year surprises you. The booms go longer than that you expect. You know, the, the black swan event that you didn't think would happen actually happens, right? Um, and, you know, the, the crisis that was meant to be a crisis got resolved um, or, you know, something kicked off. And so I think I learned that in financial advice. I was ignorant enough um, and probably naive when I was a bit younger, uh, thinking that you could predict where markets are going based on current data. Um, and, you know, then it was got proven, well, that didn't happen. I thought Greece were meant to be the Eurozone. That was meant to crash the market. Or, you know, I thought that, and so I think you can go back in time um, and be surprised every year. And I think this next year we will be surprised. And so, um, you know, that's why I think there's a number of things, you know, uh, Louis Christopher will come on the podcast, you know, early next year and go through, you know, how his potential predictions for 2024 are playing out. But he does a number of scenarios. Like if this happened, this could happen. If this happened, this could happen. You know, knowing that it's a big range when you look at all the scenarios or what may happen, you can't really base your decisions, but it's just nice to sort of talk through, you know, different scenarios rather than saying, oh, the market must fall next year because the fixed rates are ending and people are going to sell their homes and I'm going to buy when prices fall 25%. It's just that level one thinking just very rarely plays out like that. It's a fallacy. <laughs> I think, you know, the, and this is a, the wonderful thing. I mean, this podcast, we're entering, uh, we nearly finished our sixth year. Can you believe it? And, Crazy. Yeah. And I have to say that when I first started it, um, I knew that we were going to learn something, but I honestly thought we'd be imparting more knowledge than we'd be learning. There's a slight arrogance there, I have to tell you. And I cannot believe how much my mind has been opened up by all the amazing guests that we've interviewed and the conversations that we've had. It's caused me to think differently and actually be a lot more analytical in my thinking, understand data better. I mean, Kent coming on regularly and, and uh, you know, sort of a bit of a um, 
a fast track to understanding property data in, in a much greater sense than I ever appreciated beforehand. And anyone who's been listening to us for the whole, you know, nearly six years, oh, they've been on the same journey with us. And um, I, it's given me a hell of a lot more confidence to, to sell my own race, you know, and to to make decisions not with short term and that reactivity and that res, uh, res, responsiveness, I guess, if you like, that we're all we're all prone to. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I can be I can be emotionally impacted by negative headlines just as much as anybody else. And even though I know better, uh, I still feel that pull. So I think it's really important um, that, that, you know, as I said, the guests that we have on this podcast and the, and the things that we learn through talking to those people has allowed me to, when I'm, when I'm uh, working on strategy sessions with clients or even when I'm coaching first home buyers and also new buyers agents uh, as well, it's given me an incredible um, different perspective and a lot more depth in terms of, you know, the way in which I can help people as well. So I just got to bring that into 2024. It will be a year of change. There'll be a lot of unexpected things going on. There'll be some things that we anticipate will happen. But at the end of the day, property has to be a long game and understanding the fundamentals and just setting a course and sticking to it is really the most important thing you could do. Absolutely. There'll be lots of learnings for us over the next 12 months as there has been for the last 12 months. And um, we're always interested in different conversations, as you probably know on this podcast. If there's anything you really want us to cover in 2024, we're always open to to new ideas and just little parts of the market that we haven't thought about and different conversations. So definitely, if there's any guests you'd love us to, to get on, please do let us know. And um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens this year. And uh, we wish everyone the best in their personal situations. And thanks so much for listening to us in uh, for either the last just this episode or for any time in the last six years which is which is crazy if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming q a episode you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website theelephantintheroom.com.au or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au if you like what you're hearing please share this episode with others you feel would benefit and while you're at it why not leave us an itunes review five stars would be great i know that sounds a bit cringy but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say